So uh, this is the Breaking History podcast. Thank you to those who've tuned in. My name is Adam Tomasi. I am a history PhD candidate uh, at Northeastern in the World History PhD program. And I will be the host uh, for this episode where we will be uh, having an excellent conversation with Dr. Malcolm Purrington, who is a, a teaching professor at Northeastern. Uh, and I am also fortunate to be his teaching assistant uh, for the class this fall, Capitalism and Business, a Global History. And we're going to be talking about that class towards the end of the episode. But the main uh, reason why we're here today is to talk about the book uh, that Malcolm has forthcoming with Bloomsbury Press, uh, which uh, I am so excited uh, to have Malcolm talk about. And it is about the history, the world history of the Pilsner <laughs> and the global reach of uh, the Pilsner over time through empire, trade routes, all sorts of transnational connections, which uh, Malcolm is um, so fascinating uh, you know, to hear uh, speak about. And also Malcolm, as uh, I'm sure he will tell uh, the listeners, uh, was also a history PhD student at Northeastern and got his doctorate in the very same program as myself. And we'll have a lot to share about how one turns a dissertation into a book, which is something that I think so many uh, grad students are dying to learn about. Uh, so good to have you here, Malcolm. Great to be back. I was even on the very first episode of this podcast back when I was finishing up my dissertation. <laughs> it's pretty crazy. <laughs> That's remarkable. Um, tell us uh, just like a brief like recap, I guess, of what that very first episode covered and then where your book, which you you did adapt from the dissertation, if I recall correctly, has like evolved since that time. Oh, man. So that was back in 2016. And I've been working on the dissertation. It was called Empire in a Bottle. Um, got the Rise of Pilsner Beer in the British Empire from, I think, 1870 to 1914. And yeah, that first episode was really fun because, I mean, <laughs> no one really knew exactly what, what was going to be happening. So trying to like kind of guide the discussion a bit to uh, so it wasn't just about the beer history aspect. Uh, but man, that dissertation was fantastic because I also got to travel all over the place, everywhere from Belize to Germany to South Africa to England and Dublin at the Guinness Archives. And uh, since then, it's been a long journey uh, of, well, adjuncting and um, applying for jobs, applying for funding and all of that until I finally got this full-time position at Northeastern this past uh, June, I think it was, um, as an assistant teaching professor uh, full-time, which is really quite a relief having a full-time job after so long so it's really fantastic uh i love i just love being a northeastern it's kind of unexpected and delightful all on one that's fantastic to hear and it's also great not only having you at northeastern but also that double northeastern connection of the fact that you got the phd here and now you're back uh which is fantastic and as you'd mentioned, you know, the dissertation focused specifically on uh, the late 
19th century up to 1914 when it comes to the relationship of you know Pilsner beer to the British Empire uh and it's interesting with the uh the the title uh that it was originally empire in a bottle and my understanding is that your forthcoming book is called globalization in a glass <laughs> yeah so I love that and I'm just curious like in terms of like the scope and scale like how the book expands onto on like the dissertations foundation so i spent a lot of a lot of time on the dissertation and um, i also have you know i've got like kind of scholarly writing background um you know with articles and reviews and you know lots and lots of classwork of course um but i'm also a beer journalist so i'm the boston columnist for regional beer magazine and i've been doing that for a long time so my writing style kind of goes in different directions depending on what my audience is going to be and so with the dissertation, it was also, it's a dissertation. So you have to really focus in and kind of, I knew it was going to be a British empire and beer story. Uh, and it, only, it was only like a couple years into the PhD where I realized as I'm doing all this research, just kind of looking at the different colonies and trying to figure out like going to the archives in London and just kind of figuring, huh, you know, like, what types of beers were people doing? Like I originally wrote like during my master's a history of the India pale ale and, you know, strictly British made for like local and then also colonial um, populations. But with the empire, I was looking at like, what was the British empire? By the turn of the 20th century, we're looking at uh, control over like 70% of the world's population, about a quarter of the world's land mass. But it didn't make any sense that no one was drinking IPAs or really many British ales whatsoever. And so suddenly we find this, this relatively unknown style that came about in 1842 uh, that by the 1890s has become the dominant style of beer across the globe, whether you're in, I mean, Japan, South Africa, Australia, um, Central America, South America, the United States, uh, you know, both four British colonies, current British colonies, and then getting beyond that. But with the dissertation, I had to focus in. So I had to explain what beer was, how this style worked in comparison to uh, the British styles, you know, in terms of just the production process, um, the different types of yeast, the different ways of, you know, working a brewery kind of came about. And oh God, it was so much fun. Um, but I only used one case study where I was like, okay, here's the story of kind of continental brewing industries, uh, looking at kind of, you know, the Czechs, you know, like Austro-Hungarian Empire, um, the German, you know, what becomes Germany in 1871, uh, and France, and, you know, looking at, you know, how they all kind of work together, what styles they were producing, and in comparison to what the British were doing. Because, I mean, really, up through the middle of the 19th century, the British were producing, I mean, they were the tops in the world for production, like consumption, and like just like their quantity and their quality. They were the first, you know, in like nation to industrialize, which means they were also the first brewing industry to industrialize. Uh, focusing in on what they knew, focusing on the style of the porter, you know, very strong, bold flavors. So you could kind of work on economies of scale because you could use cheaper ingredients, you know, with cheaper hops, cheaper malt, things of that nature. And they're also the first ones to kind of start using a thermometer. You know, looking at temperature control for the brewing process using a hydrometer or sacrometer, which basically measures the amount of sugar uh, in 
the liquid, like just the wort before and after fermentation, so you can really dial in on exactly how much alcohol is being used. I mean, yeah, it was really like the extractor really liked that a lot because then they could tax exactly what was going on. Um, but that technology then transfers over uh, through some industrial espionage uh, in the 1830s to continental Europe, where people had already started, especially at Spaten Brewing Company in Munich, um, looking at lagering beer. So you're doing a colder fermentation um, versus the ales in England, and then lagering the beer, which means, you know, lager to store in German uh, in ice case. Um, you know, you have to keep the temperature down for, you know, down to around freezing for three to six months. And it's a very drawn out process in comparison to the British ales, which were about a one week turnaround um, by the early 19th century. And so there's nothing that makes sense about the Pilsner becoming the, the global beer. So what I'm doing all my research, you know, traveling around, looking at like, all right, what's going on in the British colonies? How did this happen? All the best research I was able to find, the best documents, uh, especially the colonial ones at the Public Records Archive in uh, Kew in England, just all I could find was South Africa. So I was like, okay, now I need to learn everything I possibly can about South Africa <laughs> and then go visit South Africa to check out the archives there and tell that story in a chapter that then got published in a collected work by Routledge a couple years ago. And so for the book, there's a lot more that I had to do <laughs> like with that process. Cause one, I didn't have my South Africa chapter anymore. So I needed to figure out, all right, it's not just empire in a bottle. Empire is key to this story, but it's about globalization. It's about, so the subheading for that, uh, for the book. So it's globalization in a glass. Uh, the Rise of Pilsner Beer Through Technology, Taste, and Empire. And that way it, anyway, it explains to whoever's going to buy it, which I hope a lot of people do, uh, that this is specifically about Pilsner Beer, but it's about globalization. And it's about all of the different intricacies and like necessary uh, pieces of the equation that allowed for the one and only style ever in possibly a 15,000 year history of beer production by, by us, uh, that now we have one global style. It's an incredible story. <laughs> I, I didn't even like Pilsner beer when I first started writing uh, for my dissertation. And now it's like, this is such an amazing beer. And there's so many pieces as I go into many chapters of what made this happen. Absolutely. And I, I love what the subheading has me thinking about in terms of, uh, you know, like technology and empire being interrelated, of course, uh, thinking about the great divergence as the, you know, capitalism and business uh, class had done. Um, that's a whole nother topic. Uh, but I'm thinking with taste, like I am not an expert on, you know, food history, beer history. I'm so glad you're here for that reason. But how does one historicize taste in a way that goes beyond just like people tried this and it was really good? Because I imagine like there's some conditioning with like a beer being really prevalent and cheap where people grow to like it. Like I, I, the idea even of an acquired taste. Or I remember uh, you had mentioned when uh, there was the uh, lecture in, in class on, you know, this subject of like British ales being like very um, heavy, right? And also being kind of an acquired taste for locals and not really carrying forth 
throughout the rest of the world. Pilsner goes down easier. And that's also true from personal experience. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, it's easier to write the how than the why. Um, so globalization is in a glass. So it's with Bloomsbury Press uh, Academic. Uh, they're, and um, it's part of their food history series, too. And so when I'm when I was going at it with the dissertation, then kind of reworking it into the book, it's the how is 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 fun easy you find the story it's kind of like okay you know what were the business practices how do they use economies of scale to kind of like make it cheaper um you know what was the technology the you know the science that is being used or not used in terms of the british uh and all of that but then the why of like okay because usually like when you when you leave your home country state town you're still you have a loyalty to that generally where especially, I mean, like, look at the British Empire, those British citizens who find themselves in British Honduras, you know, Belize, or find themselves in South Africa, or Australia, or India, or Kenya, you know, they have almost like a hyper-national, like nationalism that kind of goes with that, because they can see themselves as very different in their new surroundings. And so they kind of, they have to draw some type of connection to their home country, their metropole. And so a lot of times that can go with, you know, they establish you know, all the same institutions. Um, everyone starts speaking English. They teach English in the schools, a parliamentary system, free trade, um, you know, all of that. But then they also, you know, the styles of dress, like the fashion would still be tied to the metropole. The types of foods, they would be importing as much as they could to kind of have that feeling of home, start trying to produce the same goods um, in the new country, especially with settler colonies, um, to try and feel that connection which is why the Pilsner makes no sense. Um, because like, I mean, there was so much uh, trade going between, you know, the metropoles and the colonies. And this goes also into kind of the historiography of looking at empire. Because, you know, initially it was really you know, like a lot about just the metropole. Like it is empire outwards. So it's like, we've got London and then London controlling everything or Paris or, you know, Berlin. It's like, you know, metropole country outwards. And then, you know, it kind of shifts into, oh, well, we have to look at that colonial metropol metropolitan example. You know, like as we go through decolonization in the 60s and 70s, you have colonial histories. It's like, okay, it's the history of Kenya as a colony with, you know, looking outwards um, at the experience of kind of what was put upon them by the empire. Then you see that connections between the colonies and the empire of, like, of the metropole and see how they were both impacting each other. Like, you know, just in everything from fashion to just perceptions of what it means to be an imperial citizen versus an imperial subject. But something that, that looking at food, looking at a commodity, you start seeing that blend. This is, you know, why world history is, is so fantastic because you don't, you know, that type of education, you're not tied to that nation state model, that, that paradigm of just, you know, you're defined by these borders as imaginary as they are. Um, that have real world impacts with a commodity that's blending. That's like just kind of rubbing out the clear borders between countries, between empires. And so you start seeing things like a Pilsner beer being produced in Germany, in Austro-Hungarian empire, in France, in Denmark. And you see that arriving, not just in the ports of, you know, say German Southwest Africa or German East Africa, you know, where, the government, the German government was highly subsidizing like all the ships, the steamships. So like beer is a great way to fill up a ship hold. And you also know you're going to sell it as soon as you get there. And but 
that beer was also arriving in South Africa, you know, at the Transvaal gold fields um, or the diamond mines, you know, along the port Natal or, you know, arriving in Melbourne. And you see migrants, you know, in South Africa, the main brewer was actually Norwegian and in Cape Town, but he's producing British style ales. He's hiring, you know, all like British companies to come in and install new equipment. But then and as you get farther towards like, you know, discovery of the Transvaal gold fields and the mines and miners start coming in, not just from South Africa, not just from England, but all over the freaking world. And they're coming in and they love their beers. And so you start seeing a blending of cultures, blending of flavor, blending of taste. And all that is still back to the how. Like, okay, here, here we got some push-pull like migration factors. We've got all this, but then the why. And so for that, yeah to look at you know what what is the evidence that is kind of left behind instead of you know just piles of bottles of beers um it's kind of looking at how people described the beer and so i do delved into uh like the colonial records so what people what were people writing back and forth uh between different colonies and then looking at like the industry literature uh it's and there was a lot like a ton of you know something i discovered was just there's so many different brewing industry journals that just pop up um in england in the united states in austria like vienna like all looking at just the industrialization of beer and they're all talking like they're aware and reading each other they're translating each other's works and then i can see like you know the op-eds versus you know like this is the new technology here's a bunch of pages on you know a thermometer or like a new artificial refrigeration uh, machine or you have travel logs you've got you know what people are writing back like hey i'm in vienna right now i'm writing back to the brewer's journal in london this is my experience nobody's drinking british beer this is weird because we're the greatest nation in the world and empire and all this why is no one drinking it we need to really start being aware of what's going on in the continent then you see your brewers like writing writing in response to that going Oh, no, 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 that's just a fad. Like we are still the best in the world. Nothing can beat the British Empire and British Empire beer. But people are writing like the you have to look for the terms, the adjectives, the descriptors of you know what comes up most often to kind of understand what is the flavor, what is the taste. Because, I mean, if we look at kind of the history of, you know, food history of taste, looking like Bourdieu, we're looking at like, you know, these ideas of, you know, I mean, with mints too, we're looking at sugar for like sugar was just for the super hyper, hyper rich, like the monarchies and so on. Then eventually it becomes, you know, through enslaved labor uh, across the Caribbean and something that is affordable to everyone. Um, you know, it's only you see, regardless of class, everyone's putting sugar into their tea uh, in England. But how does that work with, with the beer, the Pilsner? Because it's still, you know, with that, you're divorced from the experience of production like the sugar is just coming in from outside and it's like, oh, it's sweet. Well, yes, us humans, mammals in general, I mean, ants, we like sweetness. That's something that, you know, it's a very simple sugar, but the Pilsner, a beer is not generally sweet. So I started seeing, okay, in comparison to what they were writing about, you know, in the colonies about British beer versus the light golden lagers that, you know, that lagering process of three to six months leaves it very, very clear. Uh, we also see the affordability of glass at this point in time, like through the industrialization, where now instead of drinking out of something opaque, whether it be, you know, pewter, like metal, silver, um, wood, um, you know, horns, or uh, even leather, <laughs> um, drinking out of a leather cup, 
Uh, it's going to add some real interesting taste notes. Um, but now it's glass. People can see what they're looking at. So the porter, suddenly it's very dark. It's opaque. It's now also an older style. Going through the industrialization of, you know, once France and Germany and everyone else starts kind of catching up, they're starting to increase their production of lots of different industrial goods, whereas like the dye industry or glass or beer itself, they start like the beer becomes imbued with something that is different. It's uh, imbued with kind of a, a new modernity. It's like the modern beer that comes about because it's not just how it looks, which they describe in, in comparison to dark porters or, you know, pale ales, which are pale in color, but quite opaque. You can't really look through that beer. Um, like they're coming out of England, uh, especially if it's like, you know, coming out of, you know, Irish stout coming from Dublin or something like that. In comparison, you have this light golden clear liquid and just the golden color is one piece that they're constantly writing about. Look at the clarity of it, where in the bottles, British beer would be arriving. There'd be just tons of residue in the bottoms. They'd have to like pour out the last like, I don't know, like inch or so, because just the residue of like yeast and hops and stuff down the bottom. Like, well, I'm not even getting a full bottle of beer. In comparison, the bottles of beer being used, being produced by the Germans across continental Europe, honestly, it's, you can pour the whole thing out. It's clear. Then they also talk about the strength. So the British beer, much more heady. So that meant it was higher in alcohol. So we're looking anywhere from six to 8%, while a Pilsner is only going to be like three to 4%. So like something the British writers write about. And I mean, not just the British, the Americans and like, you know, all of the colonists across like Central America too. They're writing about, I can have several of these beers and it's more of a session, you know, session beer. It's like, you know, we can have multiple and still have the conversation and still enjoy like the sociability that comes with, with alcohol. You know, it's like, you know, the social lubricant. And then, then I'm, okay, we're seeing more and more of these repetitions, more and more of these repetitions. It's like, okay, when I write about taste, I write about, you know, the strength, I write about the clarity and also the carbonation. Um, even though with a lower alcohol content, you know, hops are flower, go on a vine. Uh, they also act as a preservative, and, but they're also very bitter. So, you know, adding lots of hops, that's something they can add the preservation of the beer to last, you know, if you don't have the hops, the beer is probably going to go bad within a week or a couple of days even, while the hops, you know, allow for the industrialization of beer because now they can last for weeks, months, so on. And even if it's higher alcohol, also preservative factor, but the Pilsner, oh man, it's so cool because the Pilsner, as you're lagering it for like the three to six months, it's going through a very, very slow, long fermentation. And so that's increasing the, increasing the carbonation within the beer. So you have, instead of residual oxygen, which is going to can make it go bad, you'll have lots more carbonation that forces out any of that free oxygen. So it acts as a preservative itself. And people also really like that. They keep writing about just how bubbly, how gassy in a positive way that the Pilsner is. So just noting all of these different adjectives, but then there's also just that idea of modernity because the British style ales and the production processes, the business practices, everything was still pretty old school. These are all still family firms that started in the late 18th century. They're doing the same thing over and over. Just their apprenticeship program is all in house. They're not interested in the newest technology. They're not interested in having a laboratory as, as a lot of uh, craft brewers aren't initially, which they learned to their detriment that, yeah, science is really helpful with understanding yeast and producing a strong, consistent product. 
While in continental Europe, they're sharing their knowledge. They're working together. They're hiring professional managers for their companies. They are having actual schools being developed and instant like brewing institutes like in Munich, in Worms, like in Weinstaufen, like it's all over in Bremen and so on. Like they're working together. Carlsberg and, and uh, Copenhagen, Denmark, they start their Carlsberg laboratory to allow brewers from across the world to come in and learn about pure yeast technology. How can you have the same yeast over and over? Like, like the, which is something that, you know, develops in 1883 with uh, this guy, Emil Hansen. The story, I mean, yeast is just one of the coolest things ever. Um, so, but all of that is like the beer itself is utilizing all the latest technology, all of the latest knowledge for how to run a business, all the latest, you know, just ways of bottling, of sharing knowledge in comparison to the British. Yeah, top empire in the world, but it's still, it's much older. And so it doesn't have that kind of, you know, that nice kick of what's new, what's fresh, what's golden, even just in color. Absolutely. And a lot of that uh, segues really nicely into my uh, final question about the book content before we transition into the dissertation to a book, uh, sausage making. And it has to do with another theme related to globalization of homogeneity versus hybridity. Because I'm thinking, you know, in the present day, we hear about how, like, even though there's a McDonald's all over the world, they have to change their menu to accommodate local tastes. So like a McDonald's in India is gonna be way different than a McDonald's in Boston. However, um, it seems with the transmission of scientific knowledge about how to brew the light golden lager that whether you have a Pilsner beer in um, South Africa or whether you have it in Japan or Germany or the United States, that it's pretty much gonna be the same and correct me if I'm wrong on that. I'm also wondering though, was there any attempt at creating some local variation? Like, oh, in South Africa, we're gonna modify it a little bit. In Japan, we're gonna modify it a little bit, at least to maintain like some aspect of the local in the process, or was it just imitation because it tasted so good and like the science made sense? Oh, part of that's necessity. Part of, I've got a few pieces to that. Uh, one of one of the fun fun bits about looking through like just all of these newspapers, colonial newspapers, metropolitan ones, especially the colonial ones, looking at all the ports and so on uh, across the empire, um, empires, is that for the all of the British beer that was coming in on the ship. So basically, like a ship would arrive in port, and then the local newspaper would be like, "This is what's on the ship. Go down there. This is what you this is what you want. Like you know, see see what this. All the advertisements are are very present, so you know exactly like, oh, I'm gonna." walk head down to the port to go pick up you know like this leather this you know this type of food good or you know this type of manufactured good or something and for the british beer that was coming in it was all like it was all branded so you knew it wasn't just like oh we have pale ales that would be there but you'd have bass pale ale you would have all sop um porter you would have you know like you know, other like it was all very very specific so so the consumers in in the colonies and elsewhere they would know that okay it's this specific brand i like this brand of beer but anywhere you were going and a, a pilsner or lager or something like that would come in you just say like this is we have bottom fermented beer 
or we have lager beer and no everyone like there's no distinction of what type of lager because you can have a bock you can have a doppelbock you know darker heavier you know you can have lots of different varieties of a bottom fermented beer they don't go into that because it's always going to be a light golden lager like it's just the style itself. This is actually comes about um, part of this in London, 1891. Um, a London judge is ruling on this court case brought by um, the Citizens Brewery out of Pilsen. So Pilsner originally created in 1842 in Pilsen, um, currently in uh, Czechia, um, then part of the Austrian M Empire, uh, Bohemia. That ER on the end means from Pilsen. And so the Citizens Brewery, like they're the very first ones to do that. And there's a whole, that's a whole story in and of itself. That's a lot of fun. But uh, they bring this court case being like, we are going to trademark the name Pilsner. Um, this is like 1890. So we're looking at like 50 years later, they're trying to like actually copyright it. The London judge rules against them saying, you can't, you can't copyright that name. It is, it is a style now. It is something that is completely divorced of its geographic origin. It doesn't allow that. So the Citizens Brewery, they, um, the brewers, they and owners, they changed the name to uh, Pilsner or Quell. Uh, so Pilsner from the source to try and like make a distinction. And but everyone, he rules in this way because by 1890, whether you are in Japan or the United States or Australia or Brazil or Argentina, like everyone knows that a lager, a bottom fermented beer, is going to be that light golden lager. So any like distinction that we do have today, like a Mexican style, a Japanese style, uh, you know, what have you, like those are all still, I think they're, well, I already, they are derivatives of the original. So they're basically all from that original Pilsner. So that that's part of it. So already the consumers are, expect, are expecting what this is. So they don't have to think about what's in it, how the flavor is going to be. They know it's going to be light. It's going to be golden. It's going to be well carbonated. It's not going to have much sediment at all. It's going to be clear. It's going to be low alcohol. Like all of that's already just part of just what the beer represents, what that beer is, regardless of location uh, or how far it's been traveling. But when you have localized production, because that's also something that's really cool is that in like British colonies and former British colonies uh, and also places that weren't, so Japan and so on, they all start producing Pilsners in the 1890s. Now, Japan's interesting because like they did, it was all about imitation for them. Like uh, this guy, Jeffrey Alexander has a great book about this. I think it's called Brewed in Japan. Yes, Brewed in Japan. And he goes, he delves into this where basically what was, what was happening is that first Japan was, you know, isolated all of the, um, all the foreigners into like one area, one port and not allowing them to, you know, serve or sell anything outside of that. But, you know, people start liking beer. No one was producing beer uh, in Japan. It was, you know, sake, it was like, you know, wine, things like that. And so, but the people out around this port, the Japanese people were like, yeah, we kind of like beer. And so eventually the emperor and like the rulers were like, okay, if we're going to start producing beer, we are going to do it the right way. The only right way. We're going to produce the one best beer that we think of is in the entire world. And that is the Pilsner. It's going to be German. We are going to import all of the German hops, German grains, German geese, German brewers. I mean, we're going to build a German like Pilsner brewery in Japan. Um, so we got Sapporo, we've got um, Kieran and other ones. And they, they are producing an exact replica of a German style beer. 
utilizing all those ingredients. I mean, Germans even got accosted on the street, whether or not they had anything to do with beer, because it's like, you're German, you know beer, I know, work for my brewery. Uh, so after World War II, when you know Americans are occupying for seven years, not, not too keen on a German-Japanese relationship anymore. Uh, so the Japanese are like, well, I guess we're gonna have our own style of a light golden lager utilizing more local ingredients. So now it's more rice-based. The United States, I mean, barley is like the key ingredient of, of beer, uh, for, I mean, key in grain. Uh, and that also, look at the Rheinheitsgebiet, um, which is the German beer purity law. I mean, initially it's Bavarian purity law by this prince, 1516, um, ruling that beer is only three ingredients. They didn't know much about yeast yet. Um, it was barley, specifically hops and water. Barley because he didn't want people using wheat because if you're not using wheat for bread, then you're drinking it and, well, was really advocating for barley being the one. Barley is also has a lot of other, you know, really specific um, attributes that make it best for producing beer too. But so you have all these Germans, you know, fleeing in 1848 and settling in across South America, crossing North America. You know, in North America, barley is pretty expensive. They're settling, you know, in St. Louis, you know, Anheuser Bush, you know, Milwaukee with Paps. And corn and rice are much cheaper and much more readily available in these regions. So, and actually they have to come up with a whole new way of, of mashing the like corn and rice to be able to produce a good beer, a good Pilsner um, in the 1870s. I think they really figured that out. Um, but so you have these localized pieces based upon necessity of, of price, of economics. So that's where you see the localized piece. It's not like, oh, we're gonna have an Australian Pilsner. It's like, okay, what can we what can we grow here that's going to work best to still produce that style as closely as possible, utilizing what cereal grains and things that we have available here. So you have both pure imitation, but then you also have localized necessity that leads to those types of differences um, in the different types of pilsners, different light golden lagers. Fantastic. And I definitely appreciate as well the uh, enthusiasm that you have around this globe spanning story, because as I'm hearing it, like I'm like drawn in like instantly. Um, and I can also see how with this like very like genuinely world historical, really pulling in a lot of different archives, many countries, uh, almost every continent, um, unless they have Pilsner in Antarctica. I don't know about the penguins there, but, um, you know, to the extent that, you know, being a PhD student, then candidate, there are many different constraints with like time, resources, et cetera, that limits the ability to write like a dissertation that really hits on like all these different corners. Whereas turning the dissertation into the book, it seems like there is a lot more space to do that. And I'm, or potentially, <laughs> I'm wondering what advice you have for, for grad students now, especially those in my position who are, are writing the dissertation um, on how to, how to think about like your research question with the expectation that this is gonna change and that like, you're gonna have to edit this and make it into a book because that's certainly uh, humbling me with the dissertation. Like I know that it's not a 100% finished product even when I defend it. Like it's going to change, it's going to evolve, expand. Mm -hmm. No, I mean, a good dissertation is a done dissertation. <laughs> I mean, it's, 
I, I, I kept it in like, how was it? Furlough or whatever. I, I kept the dissertation kind of under wraps as much as I, as long as I could, because I kept applying for funding and, you know, postdocs and lots of stuff. Didn't get any of it. Uh, during the dissertation, I actually had more opportunities as a graduate student than I did afterwards. Cause I was just, I mean, hustling, working three to five jobs, teaching classes at, you know, sometimes two or three different schools in one semester. So <laughs> while applying for everything I could possibly could during grad school, though, I mean, conferences. Oh, man. So I had to utilize my time and my my limited funds as effectively as possible. Um, how I did that was, you know, very small um, grants or scholarships, like maybe two grand. And that would be like, all right, flight, cheap Airbnb, two weeks in South Africa. Like that was that was it. I hit like three archives, you know, and you know, I climbed Table Mountain. I like, you know, saw Robin Island. I like, you know, visited with all the local brewers and you know, and beer writers and like did all of that stuff. But I was on a strict schedule to also go to the archives, find everything that was there as rapidly as possible, scan everything um with my phone, you know, like and then upload it to, to like Dropbox of, of like just so it was backed up immediately, scan it into PDFs. So a small space instead of an actual photograph. No one should be taking photographs of documents anymore. Scan it with your phone and upload it online. So you have it on your phone, your computer, and in the cloud right away. Um, conferences. So <laughs> conferences are great. One, conferences are fantastic for the networking possibilities. Uh, just for, I mean, they're also a blast hanging out with friends. But they can also be very useful, especially as a graduate student getting funding. So when I... I was with the Business History Conference, a wonderful smaller conference, well-funded. Uh, so I got a travel grant to go to the conference in Frankfurt. That's not too far away from Munich in comparison to, say, Boston. Uh, so I flew into Munich. I crashed on a friend's friend's couch, and I was there for a week. And I went to, like, the the Bibliotheca, you know, Sats Bibliotheca, um, and... I contacted librarians. I walked in and I had, oh, like three, four foot stacks of German brewing industry journals. I had no time. Basically, I spent one, I had to learn how to read Fracture font and then translate it from that in my mind from German to English and go through all of the indices, like all of the indexes, go through those and then take very specific notes on every single page that I would have to scan later on and then spent one like 14 hour day just scanning everything I possibly could. And then, cause a lot of places, you know, only allow um, photocopies. So I'd have to pay for the photocopies, then scan them with my phone. Um, but then boom, I had like free flight, then I had a cheap Airbnb in Frankfurt, just took the train over for the conference. It was awesome. Did the same thing for doing research in Belize. You know, World History Association was in Costa Rica. Flew to Costa Rica, crashed with an old friend from high school and his family for a night. Flew up to Belize, did my research in Belmont Penn, and then flew back for the conference. Getting sick along the way, but anyway, different story. Um, and... So I, I was able to utilize like as much time as efficiently as possible 
if I didn't have an Airbnb, I was on friends of friends' couches, floors. When I was in Dublin, I slept on a floor. Uh, my friend's friend, who was a musician, I, I haven't talked to him since. He was a wonderful guy, great musician. Had a lot of fun when I was there, but I was in the Guinness archives every day going through everything I possibly could. I spent months preparing for each of these trips. So all of the goods were there. The librarians already had a good relationship. So they also added a bunch of things because they love looking through beer. So like, oh, here's a bunch of other books I found. Great. Um, thank you so much. Always be be super friendly with every archivist and librarian. They are they are so key. And they're just wonderful, wonderful people to know in general. Uh, so that's how I was able to do it the dissertation for the book for the book so as i was hustling for the past several years um trying to get a full-time position which of course i just got this past year uh it came down to learning that there was someone else that was uh going to be publishing their own version of my dissertation um all, i mean like almost like the abstracts almost exactly the same you know looking at migration looking at technology looking at the stuff empire so i was like like, okay, I don't have time to apply anymore to anything. Um, this is all like during COVID time. So, hey, high-speed internet, lots of stuff has been digitized. So I was like, okay, I actually have access to more sources than I did during my dissertation because they've been digitized and keyword searchable. And through like, through Northeastern, because I was, you know, adjuncting. And then last year I was a um, visiting scholar. So I had access to all of those resources. I could dive into all of that. I submitted a proposal, which had been kind of, I've been wanting to do for years uh, to Bloomsbury. And honest, like <laughs> the next day they're like, we love this idea. Um, I'm gonna send this to the editors right away. I'm like, okay, okay. Um, I had a contract like pretty, like shortly afterwards. Um, I don't know if that's just because it's about beer. Um, they're like the chapters that I sent. But it was just like rewriting, rewriting. All right, I need to expand this, add two more chapters. Like I already have the story in my head. I've already done all of the research, all of the reading. Added in a whole lot of new research from, you know, looking at the globalization of this style, which a lot of that I've already done. I kept meticulous notes while I was writing my dissertation. All of that, you know, through things um, like Evernote, just so it's all keyword searchable which is very key. And so I could look up like, okay, I know I took notes on Japan. So, all right, let's, let's add in. Okay. I can build off of Jeffrey Alexander's book by talking about the global reach of the Japanese brewing industry. And then, you know, I can look at South America like, wow. Okay. Now I have access to the Western brewer, which is the American brewers journal. And through basically kind of, you know, I reached out to the executive director of the Buriana society. He helped me out um, as an academic scholar, uh, can be like a short, short-term kind of availability of, the, of all of that, not keyword searchable, but I was able to find some incredible sources. And I wrote two brand new chapters in a matter of months that talk about how empire and the trade networks all kind of like different empires, you know, that are in global competition with each other are overlapping trade networks like overlapping, like it's no longer just like this, the metropole and the colony, they're all talking They're, I mean, you have migrants all over the place. So I talk about German immigration across the globe, um, including two British colonies and every place else. So it's less about empire, but it's looking at empire in this broader, like trade, like economic connections, instead of like just the British empire. And then look at the migrations, like in the 1848, 
how that played a role in the spread of the Pilsner and the expansion of the knowledge of the style of beer and the production process. And so all of that kind of came together rapidly because it kind of had to. Um, yeah, unfortunately, my acknowledgments are rather short because I didn't really have to, I didn't really receive funding or anything like that. I got it done. And yeah, actually, I'm just going over proofs right now. So it's going to be coming out June, June 1st is the publication date. Can't wait to have this in my hand after working on it for, I guess, I guess I started my dissertation back in 2011. <laughs> I know I'm definitely going to be uh, buying a copy myself. And I know lots of people that would love to read this book. And that's why I'm really happy that we can also promote it on the Breaking History podcast. We are coming up at time, but I just wanted to have one note and then a final question. So I wanted to note that uh, another thing I love about this forthcoming book is how well it ties into the class that I TA'd for, for you this fall with Capitalism and Business because, uh, you know, the story of industrialization and globalization and trade routes and economies of scale and business practices all tied into the history of capitalism and modernity and the interrelationship uh, between the two. And I just wanted to say that that's been an excellent course. Uh, and I have some <laughs> final papers that I've got a, got a grade, but uh, I, I've loved that whole semester. And you've taught me so much content-wise, also being able to give lectures in that class. So thank you so much. And I had a final fun question for you, which is what's in the fridge? Like, is there like a six pack of something or, or that you've bought recently that you would give like a free plug to now? <laughs> I'm big on seasonals. Uh, so I look forward to certain beers around wintertime. Uh, so in my fridge right now, I have uh, two different beers by Sierra Nevada. So Celebration, which is their uh, wet hot beer. I look forward to it every single year. Um, I have one or two bottles of their like big imperial stout, the Norwal. Uh, when I, I mean, it's going to warm me up from the inside. Uh, and then I've got um, oh, the Mad Elf by Trogues, Trogues Brothers out of Pennsylvania, which is a strong like I think it's like eleven percent like cherry uh, winter ale that is just a little. I mean. You just need one. <laughs> it's, 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 it's wonderful. But I also have some athletic beer. So I have some non-alcoholic beer in there as well. So if I just don't feel like having alcohol, I can still have the flavor of some good hops. Um, I want to thank uh, Dr. Malcolm Purrington again for being here on the Breaking History podcast and having a fantastic conversation with me. Uh, my name is Adam Tomasi. I was your host. Uh, and thank you to the Northeastern University History Graduate Student Association as well uh, for all that we're able to do uh, for organizing the Breaking History podcast. Uh, so thank you so much and thank you for listening. Thank you.